We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday. Um, I don't know how many of you are, are artists, or if that, if that talent runs through your blood. Um, it does not run through my blood. Um, I am not an artist, I am not a musician, um, but, but I think even if you aren't, some of you are, but even if you aren't, um, art can, can give voice to and give uh, um, words to remarkably deep things uh, and at times even reveal maybe the, the inner workings of our heart, right? Um, and you don't have to be an art lover to know that. Uh, and some of you are like, I don't, I don't like art, I don't get it. But there will come a time in your life when a song or, or a painting or a statue or something like that um, does speak to you and does, in some sense, almost feel as though it, it, it opens up a window into your heart, right? And it gives you insight into deeper things. Uh, there is a statue... Uh, in San Jose, Mexico, San Jose de Gracia, Mexico. Um, This is what it looks like right here. In Spanish, it is Santurio del Cristo Roto. It's translated as Sanctuary of the Broken Christ. Okay? Uh, So San Jose is just a little bit north of Guadalajara, uh, northwest of Mexico City. So this is really rant. No one's ever seen this. Have they been to San Jose? Okay. Um, it's not necessarily a tourist destination in that sense. It's maybe a little more of a destination for those that are in the country of Mexico. Um, but this was an art piece that was commissioned and that was, was in a sense, brought to life by a man named Miguel Romo. And, and um, as with any piece of art, what he was trying to do was, was communicate something that, that was obvious in the world around him and around us uh, in a visual form. And so he developed and he built this statue, this piece of art in San Jose. Now, you got a little bit of insight into exactly what he was thinking about because this is called Sanctuary of the Broken Christ. And you get a little bit of a sense there of what this statue looks like. Um, obviously, that's Jesus with a crown of thorns on, and so you've already, it's evoking this image of brokenness, right, which is biblical, and, and, and which, which is exactly what our Savior was. Um, but we're not exactly sure where the, the sculptor got his inspiration. Uh, we know that, that some of it was just observing the world around him, uh, but there's a secondary story that might just be a story uh, that may have served as inspiration as well. There was a, a, a local legend that went around in that time uh, of, a, of a local priest who had a, a crucifix with Jesus on it and that Jesus on the crucifix was damaged. It was missing some parts and things like that. And uh, the priest was just going to throw it away because what do you do with a broken, messed up crucifix, right? Um, and as the story goes, the crucifix... I don't know if it was Jesus specifically, but the crucifix spoke to him and said, don't throw me away, okay? Now, as I mentioned, I think that maybe was probably just a story. Uh, The sculptor for this piece, though, had picked up on kind of that local legend and and, um, understood the point of that story 
and translated it into the sculpture that he was going to create. So he, he was gaining insight, giving a window into a deeper heart, into our hearts and into the world around him. And so he built this, Sanctuary of the Broken Christ. Now I mentioned um, that it looks a little bit odd. Uh, this is a close-up view and obviously it looks like Jesus, but let me give you a few more pictures. This is it from behind. So his statue, you didn't know that, his statue is 82 feet tall because apparently he doesn't do things small, right? 82 feet tall statue, right, of Jesus called Sanctuary of the Broken Christ. Um, and you're getting a little bit better image of it here. Um, and here's one from below and you can kind of see what's wrong with it, right? Jesus is missing an arm and he's missing a leg. Now, this isn't a story of, well, there was, there was war in the country and, uh, or there was an earthquake and it was damaged, all those kind of things. What's interesting about this one, and sometimes well, um, that happens in our world, but what's interesting about this one is this was intentional. So, so he wanted to bring to mind and, and to give us insight or at least the idea um, of not only the brokenness of Christ, but also the brokenness that we see in our world in ourselves and around us, okay? Now, you might, we could, we could argue whether or not this statue does that for you. Um, but I think what we can't argue about is that in each and every one of us, in our lives, in your communities, in your families, in your workplaces, we see brokenness, you see brokenness, injustice, evil, and hatred. Today, that's what we want to talk about. Uh, we are walking towards Easter. We're, we're, we're going through uh, um, Psalms of the Passion. And today we get kind of twofold. You're going to get King David talking about those concepts, um, but then we're going to talk about Jesus in relation to those as well. So, so that's, that's where we're, we're headed today. So our theme is simply um, um, Psalms of the Passion. We're just going to talk about broken, brokenness, um, what that feels like, um, what it looks like, what we can do with it, and ultimately what God wants from us uh, in light of that. So, uh, let's see. For those of you that like to have a structure, uh, here's the three things I want us to look at today as we go through our text from uh, Psalm 35. Uh, we're going to recognize the pain. Uh, we want to look at power in relation to that pain. Uh, and then lastly, proclamation, which is kind of where our psalm ends today. So if you're following along, um, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we're headed. Um, but before we get into the psalm, we've got to set the scene just a little bit of what's happening in Psalm 35. So uh, um, this, this one is a little bit different. So if you've been um, walking with us through Lent, um, we had a sermon on confession. Um, Lent is a time where we, we, we reflect on our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, and those kind of things. So I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that the season of Lent for Christians is a little more um, introspective, intentionally. I, we'd call it maybe meditative, right? Where we say, okay, we, and that's appropriate. That's absolutely appropriate. appropriate. Um, but what's interesting about our text here today is if you listen closely, that's not exactly what David's doing today in Psalm 35. And he could have. David has other Psalms. David has Psalms that we use as a confession of sins, says, against you, Lord, have I sinned. Against, right? So David has psalms where he just, he just opens up his own heart and says, it is me. I am the sinner. I am the one that's wronged. 
this responsibility falls on me. So he has those psalms. Those are the ones we probably reflect on more often in church. Um, But today, uh, it's a little bit different, and you can maybe sense the tone even as I read through it. David, on some level, is not talking about his sins. This is a prayer about people that sin against him. Did you pick up on that? Right? Even as I read it, you're probably like, That's, he's not actually talking about himself, is he? <laughs> right? He's asking that the Lord is going to bring him vindication. He's actually pointing out um, um, sin and hatred and things that have been um, perpetrated against him. And so in that regard, it's, it's a little bit different than what we normally do, but um, I think it's just as important because the reality of it is, and I think it's transparent and I think it's honest, um, um, we absolutely ought to begin with our own hearts and say, where is my sin lie? But we would be, we would be uh, um, foolish, if not ignorant, to think that sin doesn't always or also comes against us, right? And that those things exist in our world. Um, so that's what David picks up. We're going to ask, how does David deal with it? And then ultimately, how does Jesus help us deal with that brokenness, right? Okay, so let's jump into our text I just want to read for you the very first verse here. This is verse 19. So David says this, uh, Psalm 35 is basically a prayer to God. Okay, think about it that way. So, uh, um, um, and, and it's interesting because all of Psalm 35 kind of follows in a little bit of a, here I'll give you a little insight into um, Hebrew poetic pattern. So um, the book of Psalms were poems, they were songs, they were, they were sung, they were put to music, right? So um, the language that's used there, the patterns of speech that are used there um, are, are artistic in style, okay? That's verses like the book of Acts, which is just sharing us with us the history of the early Christian church. Book of Psalms has, has these images that it's meant to invoke. Um, Psalm 35 kind of has triplets. So um, um, in three different sections, David will talk about, um, he'll make an accusation, say, this is what's happening. Then he'll say, Lord, then he'll have a plea. He'll go to his God and say, now, Lord, do something about it. And then he finishes with, but your name be praised. So he does that three times in Psalm 35. We have the third of those triplets for us here today. Second thing about Hebrew poetry, which I think for us as Americans sometimes becomes a little redundant where we're like, okay, um, is it repeats things. Uh, The best example, sometimes you've heard us in our opening confession of sins, we say, um, um, let us praise the Lord with symbols, with, do you remember the next line? Resounding symbols. So let us praise the Lord with symbols, with resounding symbols. Now as Americans, we're like, Okay, you just said that, like get, get on with it. Like we're already doing symbols. You don't have to do symbols twice, but um, that's poetic style. So you're going to see that here as well. So um, Hebrew poetry will, will, will say something and then come back to it or say something and double it. And what's the point? If you say something to your kids twice, do they get a third time? Not usually, right? But if you have to say it twice or if you have to use their middle name, trying to make a point, Right? Um, so that's, that's happening in this as well. So um, David is kind of stacking these things, and, and they're, they're similar concepts, but probably looking at it from a slightly different view. But what it does is, in Hebrew poetry, is um, it, it, it shapes a very complex, deep, nuanced reality of what it means to be a human and to know our God above from multiple angles and sides. Okay? Now... 
we should thank God for that. Because he, he does not treat us uh, um, just, here you go, here's a piece of paper, do this, do that. He understands your suffering. He understands your brokenness. He understands your pain. And he understands that for each and every one of you, it's slightly different. It's much deeper. And our, your own personal pain is always incredibly heavy, isn't it? So that's why I think the book of Psalms um, is such a beautiful part because it, it allows us to say, okay, I'm not the only one that feels this, right? Today, King David felt the very same thing. So look at these words. Uh, David says, do not let those gloat over me who are my enemies without cause. Do not let those who hate me without reason maliciously wink the eye, which is a little bit interesting. Uh, you know gloating, right? Just arrogance and stuff. But what David is saying is, He's saying that they're doing this without cause. So he's making his case. He's saying, I didn't, I didn't do anything to them. All I've tried to do is be nice, right? I, I've lived in an upright way. And, and David certainly had times when he did not live in an upright way. But, but he's saying here, I, I've been trying to do it right, Lord. I've been treating them right. I, I've been loving my enemies as myself. I've been doing these things, um, but, they, but they gloat over me without cause, so we have a word that we would say that's unjust. That's not justice if it's without cause, right? Okay. Then he, then he stacks it. He says, do not let those who hate me. So he's just, now he's just putting it out there. He says, this is hatred. They hate me, right? Um, hate me without reason, again, maliciously wink the eye, which sounds strange, but it sounds like they're not flirting with him or I don't know what winking is like. Um, um, uh, but maliciously wink the eye is, is um, um, at least within Hebrew poetry, would, would be um, kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod, like we're going to say the right things, but we hate this guy, David. I'm going to say the right things, but at every turn, I'm going to undercut him, I'm going to slander him, I'm going to stab him in the back. That's what David's talking about here. He's saying like in, in, the, in the public kingly court, they're going to say the right things, Right? They're going to say the right things, but on the back end, they've got knives in their hands and they're, they're, they're trying to tear me apart. Okay? So that's what David is talking about here. Right? Um, and that's our first point. We know that, don't we? Right? Um, you know that brokenness, that pain, and you know what that feels like. And um, you know it intensely when others do it to you. But we'd be remiss to think that that's not the only place. There are times when we, when you, have done it to others, right? And so that's what David is laying out there. He's saying that, that the world is broken, that there are times when, when people are evil and hate me and hate us, right, um, with no cause, not because we did something and we deserved it, but probably because we didn't do something, we actually didn't deserve it. And so what is David laying out? He's saying that there is brokenness, there is injustice, there is pain in your lives and in the world around you. I don't think I need to go any, I think all of you would say, yeah, that's fact. That's true, right? The question we get to ask ourselves today is, well, what do we do with that? And I think there's, there's kind of um, commonly three reactions to that. Um, but... Before we get to that, Apostle Paul understood injustice 
pain, hatred, and those kind of things too. Second Timothy says this. Now he's talking specifically to believers, to you. Paul says, in fact, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ. So a little bit, you can hear reflections of David here, right? David says, I didn't, this was no cause. And now they're winking the eye at me, right? Um, Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not might be persecuted, not sometimes is persecuted, but will be persecuted. So can you expect persecution, anger, and hatred for simply being a follower of Christ? The answer is yes. You can. Sorry to burst your bubble. That's the reality, right? That's the reality of, of, of being a follower of Christ. David knew it. We're going to get to Jesus. He knew it intimately. Apostle Paul knew it as well. And I think all of you do as well. So the question then is, what do we do with that weight? What do we do with that injustice? What do we do with that pain? Um, what do we do with the brokenness of the things around us? And I think uh, most commonly we kind of react to it in three different ways. And I would venture to say some of this is a little bit of personality-based, a little bit how God has made you, right? Uh, um, how you deal with pressures and the weight of the world. Um, so three different ways. Um, the first is you might believe it. So someone says this stuff about you, uh, um, utters these words about you, puts you down, undercuts you, divisiveness, stabs you in the back. Um, uh, the first temptation is that you believe it. Well, maybe they're right, right? Maybe this is who I am. Um, maybe there is something infinitely wrong with me. So that's, that's the first, right? Um, that might be you. The second is, and I think this one's maybe a little more common, is, is you try to numb it. So that kind of weight, no one wants to feel and have to hold. And so you try to numb it. And, and I think we do that in a, in, a, in a myriad of ways. And actually, I think the relative um, um, blessing that we enjoy as Americans just give us more ways to numb it. Whether that's through, through substance abuse and addiction, whether that's through mindlessly doom scrolling on your phone just two hours go by and you don't know what happened you just don't feel any better about yourself or the world around you and you've lost two hours of your life right uh, um, um, or through through uh, um, through pleasure or through vacation or pursuing these things um, I think we try to numb it we say okay the world is broken it's unjust the world's terrible I'm just going to try to just hunker down and just, I just got to get through church today. I just got to get back to work on Monday, right? I just got to be able to pay my bills this coming week. And, and, and our temptation is just to numb that away. Say another day, another time, right? Okay, so that might be you. Um, the last one, though, is you, you might actually turn it. And you might say there's injustice and there's brokenness, and therefore I'm going to do something about it. And so then you lash out. And you said, there is so much injustice in this world, I'm going to take my vengeance, right? And so, and so we lash out, right? Whether it's in real life or in cyberspace, which is much easier to lash out. And so we use words that are going to, to destroy people and cut them down to size. 
right? Uh, um, we, we maybe even engage in, in, in vengeance, right? So we say, uh, um, someone hated me, so therefore they're going to get equal, if not just a smidge better response from me, I'm going to hate them. And so, so we, we, we turn it and we say, no, we're going to take control of it and I'm going to hate the world around me and the people that are in it and I'm going to exact my vengeance in whatever way I can do that. And each of your areas of influence are a little bit different. And so you take it out on the people you work with. You take it out on people on the internet that you don't even know. You take it out on your spouse or your kids. And yet inside you are filled with rage and anger and vengeance. Each of our personalities lend us towards a little bit different. But the trouble with that is it doesn't actually solve any of it, right? It doesn't solve any of it. Those things might, might numb it for a while. You might, you might, you might, uh, it might affect your self-esteem or you might feel better if you enact vengeance for a few seconds, but it doesn't actually solve that at all. It doesn't take that weight off of our shoulders or the reality of the world that we live in. So, that pain is real. So we needed something more. We have something more. We needed legitimate power to address legitimate pain. Okay? That's what David gets to. I want to read for you verse 23 and 24. David says, Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God, my Lord. Vindicate me in your righteousness, Lord my God. Do not let them gloat over me. So who is David turning to when he sees the injustice and the brokenness around him? To his God. The only one that has the power to set things right. right? He's, you can hear like this is a pleading like, God, you are just, you are right, you have the power, I'm putting it into your hands. You take care of it. Now, here's where this is interesting. Um, even that for us feels a little bit like, yeah, okay, God, take care of them, and I'm just going to be right over here on the sidelines. I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch what you're going to do, right? I mean, that, it feels like that a little bit, like, okay, Lord, you, you enact revenge, and I'm just going to, yes, you know, you don't know, you know what's coming. I just prayed to my God, like, you're, this is happening, right? I, I think we get that sense, like, and, and the truth of that is it actually reveals uh, um, the, the motives of our heart a little bit. What David's doing here is saying, I'm giving it completely over to God. Saying, Lord, you take care of it. Your will be done, not mine. Your plan, not mine. Right? And that's sometimes easier said than done. Because I think our human hearts always want to balance the scales. And if we feel God's not doing it, then it's up to me to do it myself. Here's the problem. Do you know how heavy your scale is? It's terribly heavy. The sins you've committed, the things we've done, sins of commission that you do, and sins of omission, where you just step aside and let things happen. No blood on my hands, right? The truth is, we can't, it, it, we can't ever balance those scales. That's the point. So, Psalm 35, why is it in our sermon series? Um, because there is someone who balanced the scales for you. His name was Christ, Jesus, and he actually quotes Psalm 35 in the midst 
of his passion. Jesus says this, As it is, they have seen, yet they have hated both me and my Father. So this is hearkening back to the reality of hatred at times in our world and our lives. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. And this is where he quotes Psalm 35. They hated me without reason. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the power to balance the scales is not in your hands. It never has been. That does not mean that we don't work towards justice and doing what is right. But the power to balance your eternal scales was not, will not, and has never been in your hands. It always has been in the hands of your Lord and Savior. The suffering servant who is able to lay down his life in your place. Your scales are balanced because of Christ. And there is no one that could have made that statement more accurately that they hated me without cause. They hated him enough to nail him to a cross outside of the city wall in Jerusalem and he was perfect. Okay? But that power of Christ is yours. And so we see the brokenness and the pain around us, but we put ourselves at the foot of that cross. We give it up to our God above. We lay it at his feet and we say, Lord, your will be done. Your infinite wisdom is going to take care of this. You've done that for me within my own heart. You did that through the cross and you're going to do that in my life as well. Now, what does that mean for us in our daily living? David finishes with this. You say, how can David finish with this? They're winking their eyes at him, right? Stabbing him in the back. Uh, I'm doing these things. But this is how Psalm 35 ends. Verse 28. David says, My tongue will proclaim your righteousness, your praises all day long. How can David proclaim and praise in light of so much pain, injustice, hatred, and evil. Christ. Jesus is why. Because he knew he had a Savior who took the weight that he could not bear. And you have the very same. You have a Savior that has taken that load, that weight. David put it into his God's hands. Right? And God's hands are far broader, stronger than our own. Um, and so we proclaim and we praise and you're thinking is, that's, is that how the sermon ends? it could actually right? but what does proclaiming and praising your God above look like in your life? Um, I think it's going to look like a myriad of ways I think it looks like how you treat and how you approach people um, but this is the one that I think is is most powerful for me. I I think it means that we as believers have one foot in this life and one foot in eternity, and we are able to bring something remarkably unique to the broken, unjust, painful world around us. We can bring Christ and a bridge from this world into eternity, okay? We can do that through the words we use, the things we do, and how we build. The Apostle Paul knew that. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if you don't know this one, um, um, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is called Paul's um, great resurrection chapter. 
So all Paul talks about is, is um, the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection, the fact that Christ, um, that the cross is not our last image, but the empty tomb is, that sins have been paid. And so Paul takes all of that that we've heard, and this is what he says to us, to you. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul can say that because the labor of Christ was not in vain because he died and he rose again and therefore your work, the words you choose to use and choose not to, the, the building that you do, how you choose to, to, to um, treat those around you and even how you view the world and its brokenness and its injustice, we view it all in light of the cross and Paul says, your work, this side of heaven, is not in vain. It has impact. And what is the work of our Lord? Most importantly, to share Christ. To share with others that that weight uh, um, that can be lifted. And that God certainly has the power to do that, and in fact did that in Christ. So, what can God do with brokenness, injustice, pain, and hatred. Let me ask this. What can God do with broken people and lives and churches and families? Pretty remarkable stuff. Uh, this is a picture of a, of a house uh, in Passau, Germany. Uh, it's actually called the Broken Glass Villa. And you can kind of get a little sense of why that is. So if you look close, um, these are all mosaics of broken glass from all different places. Some of them, I think, were beach glass, but um, Germany doesn't have a lot of beaches, so I think uh, some of it was just broken glass from, uh, um, from landfills and dumps and things like that. Um, and they took all of these shattered pieces, which you say, this is useless, useless stuff, right? And in this instance, they created something beautiful with it. The broken glass house. Here's another picture of it. Yeah, it looks like a little bit more than just broken glass, doesn't it? I'd live there, <laughs> right? Um, the point here is, is that our God above can take broken things, broken people, and even a broken world and use it for his good, for his purpose, and to build homes, and to be, build houses of worship, and to build communities with. He takes us, it doesn't leave us purposeless, but uses us to build. Glass house in Passau, Germany. It's beautiful. Three stories. Any of us would like to live there. It was built out of things that other people threw out. Um, but, but what's kind of interesting, and I couldn't find any documentation on why they did this or who the original builder, why the original builder did this. Um, but all around the house, at different points, uh, there are little statues of Jesus. So I, I couldn't find a story as to why that was the case, but I thought maybe this is our parting image. Christ in us, Christ for you. In Christ, we are able to, to build. We're able to take broken lives, broken circumstances, um, and, and even the injustices and hatred of the world. God uses us, uses you to build, to create a home, most importantly, to share who he is and sins forgiven. Amen.